Welcome to Bible in the News, March 6, 2008. This is David Billington introducing this week's edition. Jerusalem and the West Bank, what does the future hold? A Bible-believing Jew discusses his expectations with the editor of the Bible magazine. Just as we published Bible in the News this week, there has been a horrific terror attack in Jerusalem. The terror attack was a shooting attack in the Merkaz Harav Yeshiva, which is the most prestigious religious Zionist education institution. This attack was perpetrated at the heart of religious Zionism. Merkaz Harav was founded by the late Rabbi Yitzhak Cohen Cook and led after his death by his son, Rabbi Tzvi Yehuda Cook. Rabbi Cook is known as the founder of religious Zionist thought, and his son Tzvi Yehuda put his weight and energy behind the settlement movement in Judea and Samaria. It can be seen not just as a random terror attack, but a carefully chosen target, one that would affect the religious Zionist community greatly. But the government of Israel is also warring against the religious Zionist community and the settlement movement. A quote from Arthur Hertzberg's book, The Fate of Zionism, correctly, correctly sums up what would be Ulmert's government's view of religious Zionism. It is important within the Jewish community that modern Zionism not be identified as the heir and continuation of the messianic element of classic Jewish religion. If the Zionist endeavor is ever dominated by the notion that Jews have come back to Palestine as a giant step toward the coming of the Messiah, there can be no peace within the Jewish camp. End quote. In the first report after the attack on, Jerus on the Jerusalem Post website, the Olmert government was already stating that this would not affect their peace talks. To read about the hatred of the Catholic Church toward Zionism and even more so religious Zionism, see the latest Bible magazine. One witness said, When we got in, we saw young 15, 16-year-old guys lying on the floor with their Bibles in their hands, all dead on the floor. We reflect upon the words of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 30, verses 19 to 21. For the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. Thou shalt weep no more. He will be very gracious unto thee at the voice of thy cry. When he shall hear it, he will answer thee. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet shall not thy teachers be removed into a corner any more, but thine eyes shall see thy teachers, and thine ears shall hear a word behind thee, saying, This is the way. Walk ye in it, when ye turn to the right hand, and when ye turn to the left. Let us cry unto the Lord for the peace of Jerusalem. The Bible in the News this week features an audio interview held in Israel a few weeks ago. With talk of Jerusalem being divided and an Israeli withdrawal from the West Bank, Bible magazine editor Paul Billington spoke to a businessman and columnist in the Old City in order to obtain an on-the-spot view of these manners. Now to Jerusalem for an interview with Moshe Kapinski. Moshe, it's very good for you to speak with us here uh, for the Bible magazine. Uh, you own a business, a very interesting business in fact, a biblical shop right here in the center of uh, the old city of Jerusalem. It's called Sharashim. But at the present moment, the government are talking about 
dividing the city again. I'd like to know what that would mean to you and your business and your friends, that, uh, your colleagues that work with you. First of all, I don't really think that that's what's going to happen, and I'll discuss that in a second. But, but should it happen, should the, the plans of men come to fruition, uh, what we'll be talking about is another exile, because the Palestinians really do not have any intention of ensuring the livelihood and safety of Jews living under their control. Um, dividing Jerusalem in any which way is like taking a heart out of a body. You can't have the body continue to exist. The Jewish people have wandered throughout history, and the only thing that kept them together is God and their yearning for Jerusalem. If you take Jerusalem out of the body, uh, they'll go back to being a, a ship floundering the sea. It, it, it's as simple as that. Jerusalem continues to be the anchor. Jerusalem continues to be the, the magnet. Jerusalem continues to be the thing that finally brings everybody together. Um, so on a very practical level, uh, you cannot divide the city in any which way that would really work. Everything is interlinked, interlocked. Um, the neighborhoods are interlinked and interlocked. It would be like trying to cut a, a, a letter S into a square. It just doesn't really work. And so in, in a very practical, earthly sense, uh, the plan would uh, implode. It cannot happen. It, 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 they can try. I don't think they'll even get that far, but they can try. But it won't happen because it'll implode because of its in, in, con, in, in illogical possibilities. Should men try to divide it, and if they try to put into practice uh, what they call the roadmap, for example, uh, would there be any form of resistance? And if so, what form might it take? That's a tough one. Um, meaning, if, if, uh, if the nations of the world come against Jerusalem, as they shall, uh, then it's easy. The enemy is without, and uh, it's easy to struggle against an enemy that comes from without. We've become used to that. Uh, but the verse in Ezekiel says, and Judah shall also battle against Jerusalem. Meaning the first Mary clearly says that uh, in, in most translations they assume that that's Judah will be in Jerusalem battling for its life. That doesn't make sense from a scriptural point of view. There is a very clear understanding from Jewish understanding that and Judah shall also battle against Jerusalem. There will be those of Judah who will also come and try to divide the city. Those are much harder to fight. And the reason it's much harder to fight is that everything we do in our lives is really a, a reformation and replaying of biblical scenarios, meaning if you want to understand Jewish history, look at what happened in scripture and see how it plays itself out in all different forms and different possibilities. And, and so um, the, the, the major two sins I think the Jewish people are, are trying to sort out consistently is first of all the sin of the spies, abandoning or not believing in themselves so much that they saw themselves as grasshoppers and therefore felt vanquished by the enemies around. And that sin of the spies continues forever. And the other one is the sin of Jeroboam and Rechavam, Rechavam, uh, where they split the nation into two. So we need to find a way to combat the sin of the spies amongst our leadership and yet not split the nation into two. There's a little bit of a problem there for, for me because when I read the scriptures it would seem that uh, when, um, when they were going to send forces to sort of settle that issue, God said, 
that, uh, look, leave this alone, this, this thing is of me. In other words, it was his intention that, uh, that, that that division of the nation would take place at that time. Do you remember that? So, any comment to make on that? No, I, everything is of God's volition and God's... Uh, the, there is a, uh, the splitting of the people came because men didn't understand the need to be together. And in fact, the scripture from the day one to now is all about God showing how it should be and then letting it fall apart. So man and woman were created together, separated, brought back together. And our purpose to bring back together man is in the Garden of Eden in, in unison with God. That falls. Uh, the temple built and destroyed, meaning everything is about what could be and then God allowing or even uh, uh, pushing through a, a breaking apart of the vessels. And then man is being forced to sit back and try to put those vessels back together. So is it the, the, was it the wish of God for the ten, spy, the ten nations to be separated from the two? I don't think so. Uh, but God knew that would happen. He allowed it to happen because that's part of the process. Our process of coming back together as 12 tribes is first realizing the lack of not being together. And that's why every struggle has to be not fighting against our own people, but trying to co-op, bring in, educate, or demonstrate in such a way that nothing will deter us from staying in this land, even, even if it means uh, being uh, uh, attacked, bludgeoned, etc., uh, etc. Et Taking arms against each other will simply disintegrate the people. Obviously, uh, God intends his purpose to go ahead, his original purpose, and although men may derail it from time to time, in the end, that purpose is going to stand, and I'm sure you would agree with that. And so there are many prophecies that would indicate how that in these latter days, uh, the Jewish people would once again inherit their own land, and especially the city of Jerusalem, where you are now. Uh, that fulfillment of prophecy we are actually seeing and are very thrilled to see that that is, that is happening and it gives us confidence that the rest of the purpose will be fulfilled, namely the coming of Moshiach, the establishment of the kingdom promised and, and so on. Um, do your people see that that is an inevitable thing coming up fairly soon now? Generally Jews look at prophecy with a rear view mirror meaning prophecy is not there to tell us so much what will happen. Prophecy is there that when it happens, it confirms that God is God. But clearly, we're watching piece after piece of the puzzle falling into place. Um, the Jews returning to this land, coming out of the ashes of Auschwitz, just like Ezekiel 37 said. Uh, the land beginning to flower, like Ezekiel 36 says. Uh, Isaiah 35 says about the desert giving forth uh, bloom. So there's something of the pieces all coming into place. We're watching a directional progression. If Uriah's prophecy of that to happen, that the, the, the holy places will be plowed through, if that is to happen, if that prophecy came true, surely the prophecies of redemption will follow. So what we're watching is all the prophecies happening, all of them following through, even those negative ones, even those where Jews will come against Jerusalem, even where uh, people will be frightened, people will be scared, people will lose direction, people will lose a sense of their vision. That's part of 2,000 years of exile and, and abuse. Uh, that negative sort of seeming to fall back is in fact the continuance of the positive. We're moving towards redemption. Whether it'll be in an hour, in a year, or a hundred years, we don't know. But we definitely know that we, just by walking in this land, are writing the last chapters of the Bible. That's excellent. 
There is a powerful force in the world today, and that powerful force we can call the Western nations, we could call it Christendom, we could call it the Christian churches, uh, and so on. Uh, you, Moshi, are aware of their position as far as uh, the restoration of Israel is concerned. They believe in something called replacement theology and so on. What would be the, uh, what would be the response of most Jewish people, Jewish Zionists, to those Christians who would oppose your being here? There's a clear um, understanding that uh, in Daniel's statue, uh, where you see the legs of iron, and in the goats that come, the horns. Um, there's a clear understanding that there are going to be four exiles, the fourth exile being the strongest, the most difficult, the most painful, that's the exile of Edom, Edom being Esau. And our understanding is that Esau is Rome. Now what does that mean? Does it mean Rome physically? Does it mean Edom, Jordan physically? Or does it mean what those two spirits represent? And what they both represent, Esau and Rome, is replacement theology. The ultimate battle in the final days is who is more important, my doctrine or God? And that's going to be the struggle. Replacement theology is about making man's created image of God, which is doctrine, more important than God himself. And God is very clear about what his plans are, but man doesn't want to deal with that and would rather create false images and false idols. And replacement theology is the ultimate false image. It's Esau trying to retain or retrieve back his, his uh, firstborn status that he sold because of his lack of faith. And in the end, the final, final battle is clearly Joseph will be a fire and Edom will be a stubble. They will be burnt in the mouth of Seir. Physically, I don't know, but spiritually, 100% true. So there will be those of the 70 nations that are caught up with the spirit of replacement theology that will come against Jerusalem and fail. And yet, interestingly enough, Zechariah says there will be those of the 70 nations that will come and celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. We believe there are only 70 nations, groupings in the world. They may be broken up into different states, but those 70 nations themselves, the same 70 who will come against Israel and the same 70 who come celebrate, that means there's going to be division within each nation. And that's the dividing line. Israel's going to be the measuring stick on which side of the fence are you on. Are you standing on the side of God and his vision? Or are you standing on the side of doctrine and your vision? And um, that is going to be the final battle. We're, we're heading towards it. We're already in the midst of it, actually. And everything we're saying, even in terms of which churches stand on which side of the fence in terms of Israel, you can clearly go back to their concepts of replacement theology. Those that believe in replacement theology, Jerry, generally are pro-extinction of the state of Israel, though they won't call it that. They'll talk about Let's make a peace process, land for peace, all that stuff, which are all roadmaps to extinction. And those that, on the other hand, support uh, God's plan in his vision usually stand with Israel, not necessarily with the political nature of Israel, but understand that Israel's people have to be back in their land of Israel and in the land that God gave them. And by so doing, the world will be redeemed because the nations will say, and Isaiah and Malachi, proud of Zion shall come forth the word of God. And when they say that, Remember, it's not just that that's a fact. God's saying first they have to say it. When they get the power and the vision to say that, then the next verse in both cases are, and then they shall turn their swords into plowshares, meaning the redemption of the world is, is, is linked to their understanding that God did not replace his plan. 
This means the establishment of the kingdom again to Israel. It means the fulfillment of those promises that were made to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Uh, your belief on these things, I'm sure, is pretty close to our own, and we look with great anticipation for the establishment of that kingdom of God. Do you believe it will be under Moshiach, as we do, although the identity of that Moshiach, there may be some differences of view, but nonetheless, uh, is, is that what you would expect? 100%. The only uh, entity, the only way Isaiah 11 gets fulfilled, Isaiah 11 describes the kingdom of God, the knowledge of God will cover the earth like an ocean, the wolf shall lie down with the lamb, is under the role of God's anointed, meaning God will anoint the man who will be his representative on this earth. As God rules in the heavenlies and in the world, this man will be his representative, his Messiah on this world. That is the King Messiah. Thank you very much for talking with me, Moshi. It's been wonderful once again. Thank you so much. Come back next week, God willing, to www.bibleinthenews.com. <laughs>